So it was late in the week this last week, and uh, Tanya and I are having one of those reflective moments. You're, you're just kind of like, it's a good spot, you know, and there's, there's nothing crazy going on. You're just, and, and, I, and, I, and I asked Tanya the question. I said, do you, do you think that I've been, think I've been nicer to my family lately? <laughs> the question was, do you think I've been nicer to my family lately? And she asked, why? Have you been trying? (laughs) And I just started laughing because apparently not. (laughs) Have you ever been in the back seat? Now, at times, this is thought of uh, as a bad place to be, okay? So like skiing, either water skiing or downhill skiing, if you're in the back seat, you're back on the tails of your skis, you have less control, skis not contacting either the water or the snow, and, and you, can, well, you can find yourself in trouble very quickly. So it's thought of, have you ever been in the front seat and thought, I really should be in the back seat? Have you ever been in the back seat and thought, I really need to be in the front seat, but I'm just going to see how this is all going to work out? Have you ever wondered why the pump on your irrigation system fails on a Saturday afternoon? I made this great, great salad this week, okay? So what we did was we took some shrimp and we like pan-tossed them with some spices, some cumin, some uh, coriander, some, some white pepper, and, and, and I think a little mustard, and then put it on a bed of, of, wilted, of wilted spinach and then, you know, uh, fresh sliced white peaches on top. It was just absolutely amazing. Have you ever thought, if I really took seriously the call of Christ on my life, what would have to change? And maybe just because sometimes we're there, have you ever wanted to run away from it all, thinking there is no problem so big from which I can't run away? Please note, I had to rewrite that sentence to put the preposition in the middle, not at the end. Hashtag Janmo. We finished the chapter today. But if there is one chapter in the book, this one might be one that you would want to revisit and and revisit frequently. Which invites the intriguing question, if we end up preaching all the books of the Bible at Timberwood Church, what should we do next? At any rate, let's get to the text today. 948, verse 14, chapter 12. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Believe it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It's really a series of radical ideas. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ or are familiar with the teachings of Christ, we would say this is consistent with who Jesus Christ was and how Jesus Christ taught and how he executed. And so it's no shock that Paul would have these similar realities coming out of his writings. And we start off with this, with this reality of blessing or cursing. Bless when cur- 
persecuted. What does it mean to bless? Well, maybe the other side is easier to look at. You're supposed to bless instead of curse, okay? So are they an exact opposite or are they just in contrast to one another? I think each and every one of us is familiar with cursing when someone has jammed us up. Now, whether or not we would verbally articulate that, perhaps there's some good sense that we would withhold those words inside, but it's there, right? The thoughts, and whether or not those thoughts become words, ultimately become actions, who knows? But we know what it is to curse something or something. Paul says, don't do that. But bless, don't curse. Now, it's intriguing, right? Because part of Paul's career before he becomes a follower of Jesus Christ, he believed that he was following God with everything that he had, and in doing so, he persecuted the followers of Jesus Christ. And so I wonder if when Paul writes these words, there's this little thing that's going off in the back of his head thinking, I did the very thing that I'm telling people not to do. How can Paul escape the reality that he persecuted the church? And to me, there's two lines of thought on this whole reality, okay? First off, we can be in the position where we are persecuted, but we can also be in the position, like Paul, where we were the individuals who at one time were doing the persecuting. And the radical idea of verse 14 of chapter 12 is how do we respond? How do we respond when we've been persecuted by someone? Is our tendency to curse? Or is our tendency to bless? And going forward in time, How will you respond when someone chooses to persecute you? Will you choose to bless or will you choose to curse? And what about when you run into that person who is persecuting you, who thinks that they are right in their persecution of you? What do you do? And Paul issues just an absolutely challenging command to bless them. Text goes on, verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Now, these might be the two easiest ones in the list, although the next one's pretty easy too. Live with harmony with one another. At any rate, but these two might be the, at the same token, maybe it's not, right? Maybe it's not. Because so often when someone experiences success, it is very difficult for us to celebrate with them. These innate feelings of jealousy rise up when we, can we truly celebrate what someone else is doing really, really well? Can we really rejoice with those? Can we feast with those who are experiencing radical success? Or do we resort to comparison? Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn, okay? The second of these may be easier. 
literally to just sit down and cry, to experience these intense feelings of grief and to journey with someone as they walk through grief. Mourning and celebrating, they're, they're two sides of the exact same coin, right? It characterizes an individual who's emotionally intelligent enough to accept and recognize the reality of what is happening around them or what is happening in the life of a person next to them. Inherent in the idea is the idea of community. Because if you're going to feast with someone, if you're going to mourn with someone, by definition, you're not doing it by yourself. You're doing it with them. And so whether it be throwing a grand celebration or sitting down and crying, Paul is arguing, celebrate when appropriate, mourn when appropriate. A couple weeks ago, Dwight Johnson gave me this article. It's about John Calvin. Typically, when Dwight Johnson gives you an article, you read it because Dwight usually reads pretty good stuff. At any rate, it talked about John Calvin's reality of, of how he experienced his own grief in life, okay? So Calvin's a single guy cruising along, and he's introduced to this, uh, this widow who is, uh, whose former husband, uh, who died, was an Anabaptist, okay? At any rate, so Calvin gets married to her, but only after he was pressured, because he really didn't see much need for marriage. But his friends told him, if you get married, then you'll have less responsibility at home. (laughs) I'm serious. It's history. And you you can dedicate more of, of your work. So he did it. But what he discovered was love. He flat out discovered love. And soon there was a child on the way. And soon that child was born, a little baby boy, Jacques, who died before his second birthday. And a few years later, his wife died. And Calvin writes that he was half a man in the wake of the death of his son and his wife, Idolette. He spoke frequently of being overwhelmed with emotion in his letters And out of that, he would teach anyone that he came in contact with to engage with people in those situations. Weep with those who are weeping. Celebrate with those who are celebrating. And please know, depending upon how well you know the person sitting next to you, they're probably in a state of either celebration or carrying some hurt that would be lessened if you were simply willing to ask why. The text goes on, verse 16. The easy one, right? Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty but associate with a lowly, never be wise in your own sight. The harmonious life, maybe the next easiest, maybe not. The harmony line, okay? It means someone else has the melody line. Now, I don't think this is what Paul means, but when we understand and when you hear what happens on Sunday morning at Timberwood Church, you know that each and every song has a melody line and each and every song has a harmony line. And and the harmony line adds this depth and this richness and this beauty 
It's an accompaniment. It, it celebrates, but it is decidedly second fiddle. It, it is decidedly in the back seat. It is a supporting role, not the primary role. Are you comfortable singing harmony? Likewise, are you comfortable singing lead? Can you do either in a harmonious way? It really gets at the core of how do I do life and who am I? And certainly, as a musician, the more sophisticated you become, the more you enjoy the nuances of harmony. And likewise, as a follower of Christ, Paul is arguing the harmonious life is one to which we should all aspire Within that is this reality of, 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 of don't get cocky. Okay, they're closely related. Don't be haughty. Aspire to hang out with people who won't move your career forward. Maybe aspire to hang out with people that you could help their career move forward. Earlier in chapter 12, we talked about this idea of sober judgment, looking at one with sober judgment. It's easy when we're hanging out with those that we can help to think of ourselves as higher. If we're older, if we're richer, if we're smarter, if we're better looking, if we have more than the person that we are talking to. Paul says the harmonious life is one where we're not cocky, we're not haughty, we're relating to individuals in a way that honors God, which, oddly enough, is the next verse. Verse 17, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Again, there's a contrast here. Repaying evil for evil versus acting honorably. Acting honorably in the sight of other people. Now, for most of us, this list so far seems pretty obvious, right? It's not a difficult list. It's not a challenging list, other than the challenge of implementing it. We would give mental assent to both of most of these things on this list and say, yes, those are things that we should do, but how come it's so hard to move from what we think we should do to what we actually should do? Engaging in the behavior to not repay evil for evil, to serve your anger cold. To reflect, how would my behavior be viewed by others? Honoring something, doing something that enhances the reputation. Honoring God, enhancing God's reputation. Honoring others, enhancing their reputation. Doing honorable things, enhancing your reputation. It's not self-serving. That isn't the motivation. But the self is served when we act in this way. Verse 18, live peaceably. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now, some of us look at this and say, yeah, I live peacefully most nights. And I live in peace. You can live in peace. You can even live peacefully and be a complete and total jerk. You can be very confident. Oh, I'm doing everything right. It's no big deal. It's the other person that has the problem. I'm at peace with my behavior. And you can be a complete and total idiot. 
It's not living in peace or even living peacefully. It's living peaceably. And that little thing that happens on the end of the word makes a big difference in what the word means. It's not living with peace. It's peaceably. It's living in such a way that peace is a radiating quality in how we relate to other people. In essence, living peaceably suggests that we are creators of peace. We're conduits of peace as much as we can. As much as we can, as far as it is up to us. Verses 19 and 20. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Now, God doesn't seem to be a comic book fan because he doesn't want us to marvel. He doesn't want us to be avengers. Some of you are offended. You love the Avengers. <laughs> Let God take care of settling the scores. And this almost gets back to the first one, right? Bless those who persecute you. You have to understand, we live in an entirely different age than when this letter was initially penned. Okay, there was no favor from the government that the early church experienced. No favor at all. Paul's writing into a situation where to say that you were a follower of Jesus Christ could, not all the time, but could mean that you would be forced to give your life. At times in a very painful visible way. Into that situation, Paul says these words. He invites the church at Rome to live confident that God will settle the score. Can we live that way? Can we live confident that God will make the wrongs right? Now, there's all sorts of objections to this, right? Does this mean that I should allow someone to run roughshod over me? Does this mean that I should stay in a relationship where or physically my life is in danger? Does this mean I should enter into a business situation where clearly my company is going to be bankrupt and all this? Just park all of those exceptions to the side. Those are obvious exceptions to what Paul is dealing with here. What Paul is arguing for is whether or not we're willing to trust that God will do what God says God will do. And to be sure, much of the lack of confidence we have in God is really boiling down to the simple reality that we don't trust that God will do what he says he will do. That I can't trust God to get it right, so I'm going to get it right for God. And Paul says, don't do that. You can trust God. And in fact, when bad happens, repay it with good. Food and water. Jesus said something about a cup of cold water. That, that ultimately, good 
is the tool with which evil is overcame over, is overcome. That the good that is produced in our lives is what overcomes the evil that exists in our lives. Paul says, don't breathe the very thing that will kill you. Don't entertain the very thing that will rob your life. Enjoy the freedom of not having to worry about getting even. Enjoy the extra emotional and mental space of leaving those things up to God. So we ask the question, what if the best happens? We often ask, what if the worst happens, right? Because we live in a world in which there seems to be a lot of evil that goes on. And a lot of times where there's the situations that do not happen like we think they should happen. And yet, what if we allowed ourselves the luxury I would argue the necessity of trusting that God really does know more than we do. And if we really allow ourselves that, are we willing to follow him and see if the best does not happen? I don't know about you. I don't know what group of people is most difficult for you to deal with. I don't know whether it's in a work environment, a boss, a subordinate. I don't know whether it's in a political environment, a member of the opposition party. I don't know whether or not it's at home. But we've repeatedly talked about this reality at Timberwood Church. The greatest obstacle to what God wants to do in each of our lives is not something that is external to us. This last week, Tom and I were having this discussion. We've had this discussion a bunch, a bunch of times over the 12 years that we've worked together. And it's this discussion of what is most important, what you do or who you are. And the reality that if what we do is good, but who we are is absolutely stupid, it really doesn't matter what we do. Who we are at the core of our being is absolutely critical. And that out of our being comes some incredible things. It's why we've always been reluctant to talk about a list. Because doing the list can just be doing and it's not being. But the list is here, but it's predicated on being a follower of Christ. Of being what God would want me to be. of the people that are closest to me. So two final questions. What if I get out of the way of what I want and allow God to do what he wants? What if I tell self to get in the back seat? Please pray with me. ruminating on those questions. Allow God's Spirit to work in your soul.
the list of verses speak to specific situations, many of which we experience perhaps this last week, some of which will happen this upcoming one. Allow the Spirit of God to work in your life in a powerful way to remind you, to encourage you, to put self in the back seat. In Jesus' name, amen.